Hello, and welcome to episode 59 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern and pioneer. My name is Dave Harbarger here in Chicago, and with me on the line, and also in my basement, and also in my heart, only escaping by exiling five cards and playing blue, green, 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 blue, blue, green, green, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. I'm I'm happy to be in your basement, Dave. I'm not happy to have to pay such a steep price to escape it, but I'm glad to be in Chicago. It's funny because we can't really record looking at each other because like the microphone setup just won't work. So like I'm literally a floor away from you as I visit you in Chicago. Yes, I'm in my office. Shane is in my basement with all of my beer. Shane is in my basement. What what? Bush. And also with us here in Chicago, he can empty a whole pond full of frogs with one holler when he's hungry, Zach Colhan. I've been sponsored by a small town in uh, Minnesota that has a large Paul Bunyan statue in it. And uh, what can I say, baby? Hashtag sponsor. Are you Paul Bunyan or are you Babe the Blue Ox? Mm, no, see, I am a... In a way, I'm a Paul Bunyan. In a way, we're all Paul Bunyan. And that's what Americana is all about, Dave. That's true. Tall tales. Tall tales of success in modern and pioneer Pioneer Tall Tales. Save that for a future episode <laughs> title. So one note before we get going tonight, if you haven't been able to tell, uh, our dear Stan has been really busy lately. He traveled to Amsterdam for work for a few weeks. He wasn't skateboarding and playing magic events. He has got some work life stuff going on. Um, and that's one of the benefits of us having four hosts. When one of us is underwater, the other three can help bail them out. So Stan's off this week and maybe here kind of on and off for a few weeks coming up, uh, but he's not leaving. He'll be back. And we also know that the nation will definitely miss Stan. And uh, if you feel that way, shoot him a tweet at medium gallery and let him know how much you miss him. All right. Hashtag. We love you, Stan. Don't get blocked. I'm already blocked. <laughs> yeah. I can't tweet at him myself to tell him I miss him. Cause he's already blocked me. It's true. He's very aggressive with the blocking. So this week, our show starts with a breakdown of the regional players tour events that took place over groundhogs day weekend. Uh, in Brussels and Nagoya, and the massive amounts of data that have been pouring out of these major pioneer events that were also paired with Magic Fests. It turns out that PVDDR did see his shadow once again. We'll get into that. He did, actually. You want to know the thing that's wild about PV? I, I saw on Twitter today, I believe that uh, Brian David Marshall tweeted out that PV is the first player to have Pro Tour finishes in every spot, one through first place through eighth place <laughs> in the Pro Tour. He's finished in every single spot, first through eighth the full range that's pretty amazing see I've, I've only done first like eight times so well we all know that you're a hall of famer wait wait what you shane beeps beeps has had two hall of fame careers just like john finkel <laughs> so after we get done talking about these pioneer events we will we are going to have a dive down where we return to our renowned sleeve believe or heave format and test three decks making use of powerful theros beyond death cards which cards have found their way into our hearts and which mythics will be relegated to the dive down bulk bin. And let's be honest, which cards are people going to talk about banning for the next two or three weeks? It's easy money, Dave. Yeah. But before we talk about any of that, it's time for us to do a little housekeeping. So first off, thank you to Mickey S, Scott L, Brent W, Young Udon, Matthew O, and Jesse R for joining the dive down nation. We've got a bunch of awesome new citizens this week. Uh, the support of you all is really something else. You, you 
being part of our Patreon allows us to afford editing to produce some awesome swag like pins, play mats, tokens with custom art from professional artists, stickers, uh, more. And all of those things can be yours by heading on over to patreon.com slash the dive down. You can check out what we offer at various tiers of support. We literally could not do the show without you all. So thanks again. We're also brought to you in part by Mana Traders, the best way to rent magic online cards. No joke, this has been life-changing for me and especially testing out new stuff for Pioneer and like a bunch of the decks I played this week We'll get into it, but there's not a stock list for what I did, and I like widely shifted between the body of my deck, and I can only imagine how hard that would have been if I had to re-sleeve and like, go out and test it. It's great. Mana Traders, we all use it, been using it, and get 50% off your first three months using sign-up code, the dive down. That's all one word, the dive down. And with that, let's head over to the news desk, where Shane is going to start to take us through the breakdown of Pro Tour Brussels and Players Tour Nagoya. Wait, Pro Tour and the Players Tour? And other things that start with P and T. The Players Ball? The International Players Club. Oh my god, they're finally here. All right, um, like Dave was getting at, this weekend was just an awesome dump of Pioneer data. We had the first two regional Players Tours taking place in Brussels and Nagoya. Um, those were a combination of Booster Draft and Pioneer constructed. So we had our first kind of you know PT-level... MC level, if you want to go back to that span of time in in Pioneer. So that's pretty awesome. Everyone's been kind of waiting to see what the pros would do to Pioneer. And boy, did they do some stuff. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I'm hyped to talk about it though. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, it's not so bad. It's good. The new frontier can only be new for so long, right? All right, get into it, Shane. Make us feel better. Yeah. I mean, we also know that there was a Star City Games team constructed open in Richmond and oh, I feel so much better. Thank you. You know, there were seats for standard pioneer and modern, right? But and they even have another one of those this coming weekend. So back to back team constructed opens. But the metagame and performance data that we can get from those team events is pretty low quality. So we wanted to focus entirely on those players tour events that took place this weekend. So, you know, we knew they happened, um, but you know, you can get some information out of them. We're going to focus entirely on these PTs. So if you weren't aware of these regional PT events for 2020. They're happening in February, May, and October. And there's one in Europe, Asia Pacific, and North American regions every time. So there's three of those. And then those are followed up by the Players Tour finals that happened a little bit after those three groups with the people who qualified from those regional PTs probably qualified in some other opaque ways. You know, maybe if you're in the you know, rivals or something like that, or MPL, yeah, you get you get to show up. I mean, who knows? But you know, I'm sure everyone listening will be there. So just to reiterate, and maybe maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't, but we were given a, a huge amount of data from these PT events, including uh, which is a great kind of habit that they've developed over the last couple of Pro Tours, which is publishing every constructed deck that is submitted in the in the players tour pro tour MC events, which means we get to see what deck every single person was on you can then kind of reverse engineer from there combined with pairings and data match data and match results people put together overall deck performance and individual deck versus deck matchup percentages so it's not a huge sample size but it's still just about the biggest sample size you're going to get with basically the best players that we're going to get yeah and this kind of stuff just makes me really hyped because i love being able to look at this kind of data and try to make some kind of conclusions based off it so we'll start with uh, PT Brussels that took place over Friday, Saturday, Sunday, because it was a larger player pool than the Nagoya event. There were 384 players. And so the day one metagame 
for decks over 3% looked like this. So we have mono black aggro at 13.8%. So a big portion of the field decided the, you know, the safe good deck was mono black aggro. But then we had the up and comer, the new deck on the block, Demir Inverter at 12.2%, just behind it. <coughs> what? <laughs> what? I had literally not heard of this deck up until people started posting about it for this tournament. I'm not as plugged into Pioneers I am modern. Pioneers more of a fun brew thing for me. But like, I feel like this deck literally came out of nowhere. And all of a sudden now it's just like, yeah, this is a real consistent thing. And maybe we can get into it in a second. But I, I went from this deck is, oh, that card's jank to like, is this, are the cards going to get banned? Yeah, this deck was perilously close to being like a secret, I think. Like, I think... There's a, a combination of, of effects of living in 2020 makes technology harder and harder to keep quiet. And I think the fact that it wasn't invented by like a pro team, I think it kind of was semi-organic and, and came out of the woodwork. People saw it on Twitter. I think they saw it maybe, you know, we saw it earlier in the last week. I think we talked about it, right? We did for a minute, yeah. Are you implying that it was sort of like immaculately conceived onto the scene or to the meta and that it is divinely you know not divinely uh inspired by destiny bestowed upon us. well theros is the plane of gods so mm -hmm. and destiny and heroes yeah fates yeah but if you if think about this demir inverter colon fates when question <laughs> <laughs> yeah but this 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 was a known entity going in and we'll see that even starting a day later uh, Nagoya had more metagame percentage of Demir Inverter. Following behind that was uh, Azorius Control at 9.6%, Niv to Light, 9.1%, Azorius Spirits at 6%, Is It in Soul at 5.5, Mono White Devotion at 3.6, Simic Ramp at 3.6, and Mono Red Aggro at 3.1. So, where's Chonky Red? It's a little bit behind. It was like 2.8. But, you know, I had a, I had my arbitrary cutoff of 3%, okay? I don't think it's arbitrary. I, I think I was trying to humorously make a point that everyone's favorite red baby boy is maybe no longer the hot kid on the block. Certainly fell out of the top tier very quickly, but... Gloria Bringer can only be so good for so long. Twice as bright, half as long. And so... We miss you so much, Kurt. I don't really want to get into the conversion rates and, like, day two metagame here because the draft rounds impact so much. You know, there's only five rounds of constructed per day. So it's not like we're going to get like tons of great information by like assessing what happened between day one and day two. But we're going to go over the top performing decks and constructed from both of the players tours in a few minutes. So just bear with me here. So let's run down the top eight here. So we had Yol Larson, who was the winner of PT Origins, if you were into magic back then. I think he was on a mono red deck there. He comes back strong with a fairly novel Sultai Delirium deck to take things down. Excuse me, that wasn't on the top decks list. Nope. He just took it down. Um, so there were a lot of secret decks. Um, excuse me, why are we running these simulations if it's not even appearing in the actual thing? So Delirium is basically this Sultai good stuff deck that capitalizes on the graveyard to enable cards like Jace Finn's Prodigy, Traverse the Uvenwald, Ishkana Graft Widow, Emrakul the Promise End, and our new powerhouse, Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath, which you may be hearing about later on in this episode. One thing I noticed about this deck, guys, is that the only non-land four of playsets in the entire deck were Seder Wayfinder, Uro, 
Thoughtseize and Fatal Push. So that kind of tells you about, I think, the, the flexible nature of like these mid-range decks, but also the value of these four cards to these types of archetypes. I mean, to me, this is... I My first thought when I saw this was, this is Jund for Pioneer, in the sense that this is just a good stuff deck. Similarly, Jund isn't playsets all the way through, right? Sometimes there's two Scoos and three Bobs and two Tireless Tracker and three Bloodbird Elves. So like, there's this core of like, these are good cards in Sultai. And I also like to run this card. And also this card's pretty good in my meta, etc. I think this is cool. I think decks like this should be able to exist. All right, second place. We had Piotr Glagowski on Demir Inverter. So Canister himself on the latest combo-y deck in the format. So we went over this deck last week, but it's effectively like this blue-black control deck that seeks to win by using Inverter of Truth's Enter the Battlefield effect that turns your graveyard into your library. And then you can quickly deck yourself with Jace Wielder of Mysteries or the ETB trigger on Thassa's Oracle. And we're definitely going to talk about this deck some more later in our Sleeve Believe Heave section. It was chosen for that section before we realized exactly <laughs> how much of the meta it was going to take up in the uh, the Players Tour this weekend. So Here's a quick tip for you all. I think Dave's going to heave it. But um, Bargain Ben. Bargain Ben. In the third and fourth spots, we had Brent Voss on the Lotus-Underworld Breach combo, which uses the power of Lotus Field combined with Underworld Breach to reach endgame situations like... Similar to the Inverter deck where you're decking yourself with a Jace Wielder of Mysteries that's on the battlefield or a Thassa's Oracle trigger that you're casting from your graveyard. Um, it also capitalizes on Fae of Wish's spell side, uh, the granted spell to go get necessary pieces out of your sideboard. So this was kind of a sleeper deck this weekend. People were focusing heavily on the Demir Inverter, but the Lotus Breach decks did quite well. Power of the Graveyard. Power of the Graveyard of, and not destroying your graveyard. Um, and then we had uh, aforementioned Paulo Vitor Damadorosa on, he was on five color Niv to Light. The, so, this is that, again, that powerful over the top mid range deck. It did pretty poorly all weekend, but this is PV DDR we're talking about. So, of course, you know, he made the semifinals. Yeah, for like the 15th time, or I don't know, is it 12th or 13th time, maybe? Yeah, he's ridiculous. I also think that five color Niv, whether it's in Pioneer or Modern, is a deck that has a very high skill ceiling. And that it's a lot, like a lot of knowing when to fetch and a lot of knowing to cast cards. So that even if it's not well positioned, a very skilled player can get it there because there's a lot of decision trees and a lot of moments where you can maybe outsmart your opponent or set them up because the deck is so varied and wild. Yeah, I think also people like PBDDR probably did a lot of tuning to the deck. So you can. I, oh, sure. Exactly. And it rewards that as well. He definitely had surprise. He definitely had some surprise cards for sure. Where it's like, oh, you're playing that this weekend. And even with open, I mean, with open deck lists, that takes a little bit of that edge off. But still, people can't necessarily prepare for the cards that you had in, in case, you know, instead of kind of the old standard deck list, if you can call anything in Niv Delight standard. Hard to play around singletons of cards. For sure. This was his 15th top eight, by the way. I just checked. Oh, my goodness. Not a big deal. Okay, we get it, Dave. He's better than Oliver B. What do you want me to say? Catching up on John Finkel. All right, so losing in the quarterfinals. We had uh, Mattia Rizzi on Bant Spirits. So that's basically blue-white spirits shaving a few cards here and there to make room for four collected company. We had uh, Zhang Jiang on Mono Black Aggro. So that's a pretty standard list right now. The latest tech for the Pro Tour seemed to be some agonizing remorse in the sideboard to be able to take an important card from the opponent's hand and then exile it, which is a big plus for like the inverter decks where if you take a Thassa's Oracle 
and then they later play the inverter, then they're just going to get that Thassa's Oracle back into their deck, which is where they want it to be able to cast it. So getting that card out of their hand, exiling it is great. It's also a big plus when you're playing against things like Uro or any card that needs to escape out of the graveyard. Then we had uh, Juan Jose Rodriguez Lopez on Mono Red Aggro. This is the lower to the ground red deck. It tops out at four Torbrin and a singleton Chandra Torch of Defiance. So it's trying to get that opponent dead as soon as possible with prowess creatures, goblins, and giants. Oh my. <laughs> and then uh, rounding out the top eight was another copy of Bant Spirits in the hands of Valerio Luminati. So he loves Chicago style pizza as well. Hmm. You do not. Illuminati's is pretty good. Not, not this is for a different podcast. I like that you went with Illuminati's joke and not the Illuminati joke. Well, that was the one that like you know that's the easy one. Okay, Illuminati's is the Chicago specific one. The, the hard one is Dave. What is your favorite deep dish pizza in Chicago? Pequods. <laughs> Hipster. Okay. Yeah, I like that. It's actually a little bit doughy. Mm. I like that it's buttery. It's always been, man. Okay. Yeah. Luminati's is where it's at because of the cornmeal in the crust. And it adds a little bit of bite. And I'm looking for a cornmeal-y texture. This is for a different podcast once again. Hey, if Pioneer Cast can do it, we can do it. 16 minutes every episode before we begin Chicago Pizza Talk. I think that's sustainable for an infinite amount of time. I think there will be continued takes. Listeners, let us know if you want more Chicago Pizza Talk. Join us on the Zawdown. <laughs> So this this top eight basically had two Bant Spirits, one mono black. So Bant Spirits was the only double. Yes. Other than that, it was all singleton decks. That's pretty cool. That was, it was great. I felt super happy seeing this top eight. It was like Demir Inverter didn't take over. We had plenty of, of cool decks. We had a variety of play styles. I was happy. So we're going to move on to Players Tour Nagoya in Japan, I, I really hope. Um and there were 192 players in this event, so it had slightly fewer constructed rounds in the Swiss than the Brussels tournament did. Uh, the day one metagame was, and I'm not going to get to do a spit take this time, but the top, at the top of the metagame in Nagoya was Demir Inverter with 19.3% of the meta. What? Yeah, you start, you start one day later, this deck gets six more percent of the metagame. Yeah, a full 50% more than it had in, in Brussels for some reason. People love inverting things uh second was mono black aggro with 13 percent then niv to light with 10.9 percent that's a pretty big percentage there it is and it looks like uh, some of this was at the expense of azorius control which fell into fourth place in the meta where it was in third place in brussels azorius control had 7.3 percent and azorius spirits had 7.3 percent is that that's not including bant that's just blue white spirits they seem to do pretty strict breakdowns between Azorius and Bant Spirits, so I'm I'm thinking that it is entirely separate. Interesting. For what it's worth, I've been seeing spirits everywhere online. I played a Pioneer League last night, and I this is not a joke. My first four matches were all spirits, and I lost every single one. Yeah, people are... Red's not good against it, turns out. Yeah, people are pretty darn hyped on the spirits right now, and I think for good reason, as we'll talk about later. Four in a row! My worst matchup. Then uh, going farther down the metagame, is it in Seoul was at 6.8 in sixth place in the metagame. Big Chonky Red was at 5.7. So Chonky Red had a little bit of a resurgence maybe in Nagoya versus Brussels. 
<laughs> the, the notes are big slash chonky red, as in big or, but I love that it is now big, comma, chonky red. <laughs> it's an even more chonky version. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, Lotus Breach combo was 5.2%, Mono White Devotion 47 and Black Green Stompy with 3.6 rounded out the decks that were above 3% in the meta. So mostly similar with a couple of notable notable differences between Nagoya and Brussels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting You know, that we had the Black Green Stompy deck that seems like it's, it slipped off the the metagame share a little bit, but it's making a little bit of a comeback here at Nagoya. I think it's a perfectly strong deck. It's, it's, it gets the job done. And big red. Yeah. That's the difference here, right? It's big red is there's a lot here. Not as much red uh, aggro red. Yeah. So just a different, the different metagame over there in the APAC region. Awesome. Shane, you want to take us through the top eight? Sure. Let's do it. So our top eight, um, we had uh, Kenta Harane took it down with band spirits Ken Yukihiro came in second with Sram Auras. So this was a white-black deck that uses creatures that synergize with enchantment auras and a bunch of auras as well in the deck, of course. Uh, I think the goal looks like to get the opponent dead pretty quickly. Interesting. Very novel take on a magic deck. I mean, Yukihiro is a great player. Yeah, I mean, Yukihiro was known was one of the people who originally brought Hollow One to a Pro Tour, I believe. I don't know if they were the first person, but they were one of the early adopters, I believe. Ooh. And also, it seemed like this deck was leveraging some pretty interesting cards, including that legendary Harpy from the new Theros set to be able to kind of generate extra tokens and things like that. And also, Sram to just draw cards instead of as part of a combo engine was pretty interesting to see for once. Yeah, it wasn't really like a Boggles type deck that just had like eight creatures and a pile of auras. It had, I think, like 17 creatures that all had synergy yeah. based around enchantments and enchantment auras. And I think that that was a smart way to build a deck. It's almost like a tribal deck if you make a tribe enchantment instead of a creature. <laughs> all right. Losing in the semis, we had Shintaro Ishimura. And Yuda Takahashi, they were both on Demir Inverter. And then losing in the quarters was Dmitry Budakov, an MPL member on Mono Black Vampires. And this Mono Black Vampires list is a little bit different than the Mono Black Aggro deck because it focuses more on the synergies of various vampires in the deck, of course, and the powerful three-dot planeswalker of Soren Imperius Bloodlord. And then also losing in the quarters were Shota Yasuoka, Akira Asahara and Li Shi Tian all on Demir Inverter. So these are some big names in the quarters for one. And we had two of the biggest names, I think, in the APAC region selecting Demir Inverter. So five of the top eight were Demir Inverter. How do you feel about that? Dun, dun, dun. So I was going to make a comment on the last one about how, hey, like, you know, there's a lot of nonsense here. Like, there's the Breach deck and the Inverter deck, but there's only one in the top eight, and I'm okay with that. Like, the Silly deck has some representation, but it's not going to win at all. And then, like, immediately after what? You said this is two days after? Yeah, so this one started on Saturday instead of Friday. The next day, yeah. Yeah, the very next day, we see it go from one healthy top eight spot to five very unhealthy top eight spots. So, yeah, I mean, my uh, my day late theory is uh, not really applying here because they all just submit their decks in the same day, but pretend, pretend that I was right. We're going to talk about this more a little bit later when we do a longer look at Demir Inverter, but it is so wild to see a deck that doesn't exist 10 days before suddenly come to dominate a pro tour 
series like this. I mean, it it's definitely happened before in Magic and used to be a thing that actually happened sort of regularly in Magic before there was streaming, before there was as much kind of like community discourse around deck building. You would have people just show up with something like, you know, Drago Blue, Ophidian Blue, and all of a sudden they would just blow out a Pro Tour and everybody was like, oh my God, you kept this deck secret for six weeks. But um, it's wild to see that happen today. Yeah, it's the kind of stuff that I even remember like when a team channel Fireball had like the the is it install artifact deck in the that one pro tour, right? And they're like just there's cleaning up. It was Pro Tour Origins actually that Joel Larson won because he beat Sigrist in the finals. That's right. Who was playing that that is it deck. Yeah, but they they had a ridiculous win rate. Before we move on to talking about all this data and what we can learn, I have a quick question. Do we think it's possible in this day and age of like easily accessible data and magic online games to have a deck really be secret? Like, what do you have to go through? What hoops do you jump through to keep it between you and your pro friends only? Well, here's what's funny, Zach. I'm thinking about that. And and so Canister, Ghost. he did not create the, 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 the Demir Inverter deck, but he is the type of person that people keep their eye on to play decks like this. And he now has a different kind of incentive to promote decks like this, right? Where he can be like, hey, Come watch me stream this crazy new deck or, you know, read my my Twitter or, you know, I don't think he has anything behind like paywalls, but there are various new incentives in the era of, you know, Watsy caring about people streaming and, you know, Twitch revenue that make people want to talk about decks more than even take them to a tournament. That's super interesting. And I like to think of this a lot in Magic, and I kind of mentioned it during our previous episode about our 2020 goals, but like the cost-benefit analysis is something that you're like measuring about everything at all times. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the benefit to being public with the deck and having it out there and promoting it outweighs the cost of having your deck list known by others. Yeah, I mean, I think like if if Canister had, had figured this deck out himself like six days before the Pro Tour, or the Players Tour rather, I don't think he would have been streaming it or promoting it. It'd been like, you know, I want some secret tech. I do think he tuned the heck out of it though. Yes. And sort of got a lot of credit for popularizing it to the point where everybody else decided to pick it up. So exactly. He may not have designed it, but he definitely put on a show with it and then had, you know, got other people to pick it up. So I think he was a major factor in people playing it. It was some, some amount of justice to see him make it to the finals in Brussels as a result. But yeah, I'm not trying to take that away from him, Dave. I'm thinking more about like the different, incentives to balance about like you know if 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 you create a deck completely out of the blue then like zach was saying then like you know can you keep that a secret or do you want to like you said are you tuning a deck that's more publicly known they're kind of like two different things altogether i think it's hard for anyone who makes part of their living streaming to keep stuff secret because you know even if you're playing it you're testing it there's a lot of people streaming it and they might see the deck and then they're like, well, what's this deck that we're playing against? And there's like 10 different people who might be streaming Pioneer and Magic the Gathering online. And you can't, you know, you can't hide your play testing if you're testing on Magic online. Stuff gets more public more quickly just because of the number of eyes on the game. Yeah. I also think that it's clear that the incentives, if you are a streamer, are to get eyeballs on your stream. And so if there's hot new tech, you want to have it first. You want to have people watching you because money from pro tours, money from tournaments is much higher variance than growing your Twitch stream, getting new subs, things like that. So as long as you can keep your finger on the pulse, I think that, you know, 
you're growing your audience. That's that's money in the bank, baby. That's my Zach line. That was a Zach esque line. Was that not Zachy? Yeah, that was very. <laughs> but then the Zach EU definitely. Baby. So we got a bunch of this awesome data from both these players' tours, and we can learn from it in order to move us and the listeners forward in kind of deck selection and knowing the metagame. So we have all these lists of the best performing decks um, only in constructed, right? So we, they, they released the decks that got, you know, 18 plus 21 plus 24 plus. And if you aren't familiar, you get three points for every match win you get. So that means we know what decks did six and X, seven and X, eight and X in constructed only with none of the draft getting in the way of those results. And so in Brussels, 35 players got seven wins or more and 15 players did in Nagoya. There were only nine rounds of constructed there instead of 10 in Brussels. So that's why there's a a smaller sample size. So good grief games saved us some time. They quickly pulled together a chart of the percentage breakdown of those seven plus win decks. And they are Demir Inverter at 22.7% of those decks, Spirits at 18.2%. I don't think they split between uh, Azorius and Bant, but I think Bant did much better over the weekend. Black Aggro was 13.6%. Is it in Soul? 12.1%. Red Aggro, 9.1%. The kind of Heliod combo, Mono White Devotion stuff at 6.1%. And Other at 18.2%. So what's interesting to me here, and I think something we can explore a little bit, is that decks like Spirits and Is It in Soul made up around 6 or 7% of the players tour metagame, but represented a much higher percentage of kind of the winners metagame. You know, is spirits is about three times as much of a representation in the winning decks. And is it in souls like twice as much? Yeah. I mean, people were, were liking both of those decks. I mean, I know that is it in soul was something that a number of people were looking at late. Uh, I saw a couple of people mention on Twitter that they were testing that late and then switched to Demir Inverter pretty late. So I, I think is it is a deck that a lot of pro players like, I think spirits, you know, just turns out that it's the aggro. It's an aggro deck that can sort of fight its way through the black deck as well. And so I think it kind of gets a little bit of a boost off of there being a lot of the uh, a lot of mono black aggro in the meta. Yeah, and spirits just has has a lot of ability to disrupt instants and sorcery spells. It can counter anything with stuff like spell queller. It just has a lot of flexibility and disruption. And you have to be able to play around so many different things that spirits could be doing that it's really challenging for the opponent when you're facing down a, a good spirits player. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you remember the first sleeve belief heave. I think we did for Pioneer. I played spirits or did i play spirits for i think i played spirits and pioneer for our spirits deck dive actually now i think about it Mm -hmm. and i was kind of like i think spirits might be just better in pioneer than it is in (laughs) than it is in modern now and i I think i think that's turned out to be true you know it's most of the same cards it's got worse enablers there's no aether vial there's no noble hierarch there's no uh cavernous souls but the raw power of the creatures themselves are are there and there's a pretty good replacement for droxhall captain and imperion eagle so you know, fly spirits fly. Yeah. And another deck that's still relying on fairly weak allied color mana. Well, that's a whole other thing, but we're going to talk about that more a little bit later. Okay. So, and then we can dig even deeper than just the raw performance. One of my favorite sites over the past, you know, six, eight months or so is mtgmeta.io. And the, the mods there, or I think it's maybe just one developer, was doing some really fast on-the-fly work while these players' tours were taking place to determine deck versus deck performance. And so since we knew what everyone was 
was on, you looked at the match results each round, see how those decks were stacking up against each other. And so looking at that, we have a fairly small sample size for a lot of the different matchups, even the most popular decks, but we can begin to see some of the trends taking shape and try to see what we can keep an eye on. And so what was cool about MTG meta is they have this combined pioneer metagame and it's you know, 95% of the data I think is taken from the, the players tour events. And that's pretty fascinating because we can see what are the best performing decks so far and Saltide Delirium only had 53 matches, but a 69.8% win rate over those matches. Bant Spirits was 64.2% win rate over 67 matches. Demir Inverter at 58.2 over a really large 443 match sample size. Monored Aggro 56.3% over 112 matches. And then also over 50% were things like Lotus Breach, Mono White Devotion, Mono Black Vampires, Simic Delirium, and also Simic Ramp. So you might notice that some of the most popular decks performed kind of around or just below 50%. So we had things like, is it in Soul, Azorius Spirits, Mono Black Aggro, Azorius Control, and Big Red were all about 46 to 50% in these tournaments. And even one of the most popular decks, Niv to Light, was down at 44.7% in terms of performance. Yeah, I really thought that this Pro Tour was going to be like a coming out party for, for Niv. And it sort of didn't happen in that way. I mean, it's a deck that I think a lot of people seem to be gravitating towards. I mean, PV ended up on it, so there were pro people enjoying it. And uh, yeah, surprised to see the the win rate so low. But Shane, let me ask you. So we just talked about a whole bunch of data. You've, you've been the one thinking about it the most. So I would like to know, what, what do you think the takeaways are here for the next week, I guess? I mean, you know, this episode's going to come out right the day that the, uh, the PT in Phoenix starts. And um, what do you think the takeaway is for this week and maybe for the month or so after this? I mean, that's a tough question, right? Because one thing that you can look at that I thought was cool was you know, the MTG meta site does this cool thing where they kind of look at the best expected performance. So based on the mashup data combined with the metagame share of other decks in the field. And so their current suggestions for, quote, best expected performance are things like Bant Spirits, Sultide Delirium, Demir Inverter, and Simic Ramp. Simic Ramp kind of surprised me because its raw win rate is you know just above 50%, but perhaps the win rate it has against popular decks, and that will likely become more popular because of their breakout performances or consistent performance, means that it will become a better selection in the future. The things that I think are cool is... People, I think, were not looking at Bant Spirits much compared to Azorius Spirits. And the delta between the performance of Bant Spirits versus Azorius Spirits was like 14%. Well, and also, let's talk about what the difference between those decks are. Yeah. It's really just Collected Company. Yes, exactly. Collected Company. And maybe some sideboard cards, but primarily, it's just Coco. Coco is so good. Collected Company is such a good card. I don't think it should be banned. But I wonder if Pioneer is a type of format where a card like Collective Company could get banned because the power level is so different than modern. Yeah. You know, uh, I think there's a long line of cards uh, ahead of that right now, but we'll see. Uh, they have a fast pass, Dave. What's interesting is, you know, that's one of the cards that people were very hyped. They expected to be kind of a staple, a pillar of the format, and it hasn't really shown up. But maybe now if, if people do keep jamming banned spirits over... Azoria Spirits, then we'll see it become more of a staple of the metagame. 
I think I want to talk about the Sultai Delirium deck with you all a little bit. The the match sample size was really low. Well, only like five pilots brought it or something like that, right? Yeah, I think it was it was, it was six pilots at Brussels. I don't think it was a known entity uh, for Nagoya. I mean, the one thing we should say is that is that Sultai kind of mid-range was a deck that had some really good results at the beginning of Pioneer. Yes. Right? The first couple of tournaments, the first couple of challenges on Magic Online, Sultai Delirium was right there. Or Sultai mid-range, I guess, is what it really was. Yeah. And so I think it's kind of like out there as a shell that people know is good. It gets to run Thoughtseize and Dig Through Time. That's a pretty big start right there. At the time, it got to run Oko as well. And and now instead of Oko, it has another three drop in Uro. So I feel like that's a pretty heads up thing to think about, you know, enable the graveyard, get Uro in there as fast as possible, get value other ways, make Traverse the Ulinval good. I think it's just a shell that is good. And it took some people being willing to step outside of what everybody else was thinking about the metagame to realize there was this shell out there that wasn't being utilized properly. Everybody was looking for a home for Uro, right? Yeah. Uro's just a house. There's so much value there. I think that keeping your eye if you like playing this style of deck keep your eye on it i think that it's definitely got a lot of inherent strength but we also have seen decks like this kind of pop up and then sort of disappear and i think part of it is the fact that great players like yul larson were piloting this deck and i think that you know very skilled players are are much better than players like me in extracting as much value as you need to get out of the cards in a, in a deck like this, because it sort of exists in between uh, an aggressive linear strategy and like a ramp strategy and a control strategy. So you're making, there's just a lot more decisions in a deck like this typically. Yeah. I mean, to me, this reads very much like a meta deck. This is a meta deck. Someone had a read on what was going to happen. They saw a card that was being underutilized and decided to just shove all in on, on enabling it. And then they found other cards that were underutilized as well, like Emrakul the Promised End. Even Jace Fringe Prodigy has not really had a great home. I've been seeing more and more of Emrakul to show up, whether it be online or my LGS or even like at Modern, people are jamming Pioneer between games. I feel like I see Emrakul a lot. And even like in Eldrazi Tron and like Normal Tron in Modern, I feel like it's a card that maybe was undervalued and now it's popping up more. People just are enjoying using it. But I feel like I'm seeing it her more and more. Yes, great card. Uh, I think some other takeaways are that all the combo decks are real deals. Demir Inverter is a real deal. Lotus Breach is a real deal. Mono White Devotion is the real deal. I think m- probably more as a combo deck than a beatdown deck, but it's, I think it's getting the job done on, on both sides of the coin. Gross. <laughs> Utterly disgusting. So uh, the newly built versions of Mono Red also appear able to get the opponent dead pretty quickly before they can really get their game plan going. And so, I mean, I don't know if I could tell people what to select for going to the GP or the player store. I think the player store people, they have, you know, they're more highly skilled than me. They're not listening to me about what decks to pick. I, I don't think there's anybody from the player who's like, I got to see what the dive down thinks about pro. I mean, this episode is going to come out after they submit their decks for Phoenix <laughs> anyway. So Dave, what are these very funny boys talking about on their podcast? And how can I submit it last minute to the GP? Yeah. They're going to send a note to whoever's in charge of organized play and be like, wait, I need to change my submission. Dear T.O., I, I, I normally don't do something like this, but something wild happened to me today. I'm playing Rakdos mid-range with Croxa now. I'm different. I think the things that we're already seeing 
sort of pop up on Twitter are some weird new versions of the inverter decks that are like Sultai inverter. So I think just keep be prepared for inverter and graveyard strategies. Be prepared for delirium strategies. It's it's hard to be prepared for everything, but I think that you're going to have to have a game plan for these combos for sure. Awesome. Well, Shane, thanks for this incredibly in-depth <laughs> breakdown of the two players tour events that we had this week. I mean, I think it was awesome to see Pioneer on the biggest stage for the first time ever, you know, and see, like you said, see what the pros really do with it, you know, and I think we got as viewers, we got kind of one of the results that we wanted, which is, oh my God, all of a sudden there's this new ish pillar of the format that everybody has to pay attention to that didn't exist last week. Yeah, And the format looked good. I think it looked really good. The games were interesting. They were not over ridiculously quickly. There's a lot of swings. There's a lot of cool opportunities for uh, cool top decks. There's a lot of drama that I think might not have been there in you know a more linear format. And there's so many decks that came out looking good. So I think the format looks really great right now. Awesome. Pioneer's fun. Pioneer's cool. I enjoy a format where there's a lot of like, oh, do I have my answer? Ooh, this is half an answer. Okay, the game goes one more turn. I got to tell you, I'm missing some modern, though. I can't wait to get back into some modern. I I mean, I'm loving modern, too, my friend. I'm running out. So promise to everybody, next week's episode is going to be about modern. Just... <laughs> So everybody knows. I know there's going to be another. Yeah, ostensibly. ostensibly. There's going to be another players tour, and I'm sure we'll cover it in the breakdown again next next week. We'll cover, we'll cover Phoenix, and Shane is going to Phoenix to play in the Grand Prix. GP. Yeah. The GP with, uh, with a number of people from the Dive Down Nation. So I'm sure we'll have a little recap of that. But we're going to be talking to Modern next week, too. All right. Well. Like we said, plans for next week, plans for the week after. Keep an eye on it. Uh, Next up, we're going to go to the dive down and do a sleeve believe heave on some of the ways that Theros is affecting Pioneer. Stay with us. And again, we have returned to the one piece of IP that we have that we're working on a trademark for. And that is our sleeve, believe, heave patented rating system that we use to discuss uh, how much we like decks, new decks that we're seeing in the uh, magic metagame. I'll have listeners note that this is actually the 50th episode anniversary of the sleeve, believe format being introduced to our podcast episode nine. Originally. Oh man, get the retrospective video going. In the arms of... Uh, I'm working on the Sleep Believe Heave Lifetime Achievement Award soon, and uh, it's going to be good. It's going to be quite a cut. So anyway, this week, given that uh, there's a lot of focus on Pioneer and also a lot of things happening because of new cards from Theros Beyond Death, what we decided to do was do a Sleep Believe Heave for decks that are being made possible in the Pioneer format by new cards from Theros Beyond Death. So if you aren't aware what Sleeve Believe Heave is, it's essentially just our three-tiered rating system. Sleeve means sleeve it. I can't wait to play it. I think it's going to be competitive, fun. When you, however you value Magic the Gathering, uh, it'll probably float your boat. Believe means we believe in it. We think that it either is pretty good or it has a shot of being even better or perhaps in the right metagame. And Heave means... Heave it. We don't think it's very good. We don't think it has shot of being a competitive deck in the format. A fun thing of note is that one person's sleeves and another's believe. 
and that this is very subjective. And like Shane said, this is about what you get out of it. So you could sleeve a card because you you know you're going to play it and you don't care if you go 2-2. Two, two. But someone might elaborate and say, I'm sleeving this because I think it's worth going 4-0. So there's always an elaboration, but it's, it's a fun system that, you know, is kind of user dependent. Absolutely. And so the first user who's going to start us off this week is Zach with what else? Rakdos Midrange? Croxa, I'm player one. Oh, I got the good controller. I got the good controller. What are you going to do? Set. My B button doesn't work. Well, you get the Mad Cats one, Shane, and you always will when you come over. That's hilarious. The Mad Cats. <laughs> Do you guys have that? I had the NES Advantage. Oh, hell Anybody yeah. Get that? that turbo button. So good. So this week I got to play a smattering of 12 games with Croxa in a Rakdos midrange shell in Pioneer. And it's worth noting that all these decks will be in Pioneer, as we had a fun weekend on the frontier. So, in case anyone needs a refresher for what Croxa is and what they do, they are a 2-mana 6-6, seems good, black and a red, legendary creature, Elder Giant. So, when they enter the battlefield, sack it unless it escaped. Okay, so that's a thing. But when it enters or attacks, that is a trigger. And that is each opponent discards a card. And each opponent who didn't discard a non-land card this way whether it was by discarding nothing at all or by discarding a land, you take three damage. Stupid, sexy Smithers. He's discarding nothing at all. Nothing at all. He's discarding nothing at all. And then the escape cost that we had mentioned before is black, black, red, red, four mana total. Exile five of their cards from your graveyard. So you play this on curve for two, and they have to discard a card, and if they can't or discard a land, take three. And then later, when you are able to pay four mana and get rid of five other cards, it comes back, triggers, but doesn't die, so sticks around. So this is the card that I thought was pretty interesting from the get-go. I literally saw it like an hour or two before we recorded when we talked about it, so my thoughts were sort of like nebulous, and I was like, well, two mana, six, six seems good, but I don't want to oversell this. I just saw this card. Zach's nebulous thoughts is my favorite fish B-side. <laughs> Oh, dude! <laughs> I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop doing this, but I love doing it. <laughs> no, we're a comedy podcast, okay? So I thought Croxa was really interesting from the get go, but didn't really percolate where it could go. But after being able to trade for some and acquire some, I started just like, okay, I need to jam this. I have it. How do I play this card? So I tried to put it in like a pioneer 10 rack 8 rack deck originally stuff like pack rack the energy bob glint sleeve siphoner even shrieking affliction and daver girl legal in this format but you know there is a lot of testing there i don't have time to constantly or rather i choose to spend my time differently than non-stop jamming games of pioneer of a deck i'm brewing and because this isn't a brew episode i moved past that and moving on to established decks but i do think there's some sort of energy discard shell viable with croxa but right now it's seeing play in more grindy mid-range decks. Yeah, I was concerned the the path you were walking down. I was like, Zach, this, this is about established decks. I choose to believe that the Jedi are evil, Shane. Yes. So something I found <laughs> when moving on from my, maybe one day, Magnuson Homebrew, is that there's a lot of decks that are doing pretty okay with this that have a basic core that is Kroxa, uh, Thought sees perhaps a Goblin Rabble Master, perhaps a Legion War Boss, perhaps some Colgon's Command, perhaps a Prankle, perhaps a Glorybringer. There are just a lot of viable black, red, mid-range grindy cards out there. So it was, I had like, basically I couldn't brew, but I had a card pool I could pull from is how I viewed it basically. Like, oh, these cards are consistently showing up in some number. 
put these into a deck. There were even decks like uh, Mono Black Egro that happened to be splashing for this. So you had things like Bloodsoak Champion, Stitcher Supplier to fill the graveyard along Kroxa. But where I ended was closer to a sort of big red, chonky red, Rakdos mixture looking to do some really cool grindy value-based things. Cool. Sounds sounds like a good place for it to live. I think that yeah yeah. I think that what's been proved not proven, but what's become a little bit apparent over the last couple of weeks is that these titans with the escape clause on them are sort of grindy cards, right? They give you value. They go to the graveyard. They come back later, and so having them go on plan with a kind of mid range style deck, I think, makes a lot of sense. So the deck I ended on, I'll just go through it really quick. Um, I'm calling it DDR as in discard, discard, revolution. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. I, all the fans at home who laughed, I want to say that I love you from the bottom of my heart. So anyway, we're running Thoughtseize, we're running Fatal Push, we're running Kroxa, we're running Bonecrusher Giant, Goblin Rattle Master, Rekindling Phoenix, which I personally love, Glorybringer, I, and I also ran some Pat Racks in my version, and I loved that card. It was really, really good here. Get into that later. But really, you know, things like Dreadbore, Colgon's Command... And just black red lands. So there's a lot you can do with that. Like if you don't like Pack Rat, what if you find a different two drop or maybe removal? What if you want to go higher in Rebel Masters, higher in Glory Bringers, higher in Chandra Torture Defiance, whatever you want. So there's a lot to work with here, and it's just value. So what I liked about this deck is when it was hitting its curve and doing what I wanted it to do, it felt so good. Like turn one thought seize, get rid of a threat or removal, turn two Kroxa, discard whatever you want, probably maybe take three damage because you don't want to lose other stuff. Turn through Rebel Master. And it's just like, whatever I do after this, I just feel in control of the game. Because you kill Rebel Master, great. I have more cards to play. I'll escape Kroxa eventually and just bury you in this sort of, not anti-card advantage, but like empty your hand, lose your removal, so you can't remove my must-deal-with-threats. Deck also had a lot of really fun synergies. Like I said, Pack Rat was really cool. Either answer it or you begin feeding the escape on Kroxa and... It was awesome played against control decks. So many control decks had to spend a board wipe to remove a single pack rat, and that feels very, very good. Uh, the vehicles have a really cool interaction as well. So you run a Hardy Kieran in here, and what you do is when you play a Kroxa or even an Uro, that trigger goes on the stack, and you can crew the vehicle in response to the sack trigger. So they can get in the car before they die, and it's just added value. And like Hardy Kieran has vigilance, so like you can hit a walker, hold it back to block. It was really cool. So when this deck was able to curve out and you could reliably get your low-to-the-ground hand out there, it felt very hard to stop. But that is hampered by what I didn't like with this deck, and what's really difficult is this mana base is such <laughs> bad garbage. Like, it's... When you curve out like that, it's amazing, but the amount of turns you just have to play a tap land on turn one and go, well, this is good because now my mana is well, ideally fixed the rest of the game, but I have to do this because otherwise I don't get a turn two play or whatever it is, right? So really this deck, like I said, wants to go turn one, one drop. Turn two, two drop. Then on turn three, are you doing a one drop and a two drop, a three drop, trying to do some maybe activate a pack rat, whatever it is. This deck wants to get as much out of its mana each turn as it possibly can because of how just grindy it is. So if you can't play a three drop because a land comes in and play tapped on a certain turn it very much felt like sometimes like oh this is a turn i lose the game like i can't remove that card and i can't make them discard Colgon's command and now i know that they okay they play their removal they swing in yeah it's over so this deck is really cool but just you have to run temple and like canyon slough the the cycle dual land from amonkhet 
you have to run some number in this deck because it does get a little grindy and you do need to cycle them at some point. And maybe I'm wrong and overvaluing it, but it's, it goes well with the Dragon Skull Summit. And I just feel like we talk about it all the time, but this allied mana base is so super hard to work with that this deck is, really needs a really greedy curve and really needs to keep things low to the ground. And you're not rewarded with that early game. And it feels like this deck only can really maybe turn on sometimes, turn four after, and your deck coming online turn four is too late sometimes. So Zach, before we get too much farther into you, uh, you know, falling for the old trap of talking about allied mana bases and pioneer again, it's my favorite trap. Yeah, I know you love it. Classic blunder. What? How do you feel about Kroxa as a card itself? Was it was it worth the stretch for? Do you do you think it's powerful? Yeah, I do. And maybe the whole thing is that maybe the splash needs to be smaller and only for red in a black deck or black in a red deck, whatever you want to do. But Crooks is good. Like, Crooks is just straight up good. And like there were a lot of games where you're able to cast Crooksa, it dies, and then you escape it on the same turn. Like that's only six mana. And like in games where you're discarding and Colgon's commanding or, you know, dread boring or whatever it is, you can get there. And just Oh, by the way, okay, so you have one card in hand. You have to lose that. Maybe you take three, maybe you don't, depending on what it is. But then you escape Kroxa, and you have zero cards in hand, so take three anyway. Right. So on this turn, you end with a 6-6 six, six in play, your opponent down up to two cards, and maybe taking up to six life. Like, it's just, it's very powerful. But the thing is, the red, red, black, black, and the escape cost is a real cost. And you do have to hamper your deck by doing that. Like, I ran a singleton Mutavolt and often was like, do I need to cut this? Like, is this really costing me enough games for this to be worth it for me? But I think Croaks is very, very good. The fact that it doesn't exile after it escapes the first time is clearly amazing. And just honestly, I found there are games where I could escape it twice sometimes. Like, a deck that allows you to grind really lets you get value out of this. And you don't have to have graveyard synergies. Like, I did things like maybe ran maybe a couple more Fable Passage than I initially would have, so I could feel that and make my mana a little more consistent when I was trying to go down the enter into play tap lands automatically. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to... This is just a card that is good in here and you get value out of. And I don't think all the shells that we're seeing maybe even appear at the Players Tour, maybe even appear online. I think they're clearly still evolving, but there's something here. And Kroxa really, really, really impressed me. Yeah, I mean, I've actually played against a deck quite a bit like this a couple of times. Even when we were testing for our Chonky Red hmm. episode, um, I played... It, we, we did that episode right after Theros came out, and so there were people who were starting to play Chonky Red plus Kroxa, and I think it does fit in a deck like that in the sense of just being like, it's a, an avenue for you to get some value out of the graveyard, which the red deck doesn't have a lot of avenues to be able to do because it's not like they have a Devil Spell and Pioneer or really too much graveyard synergy at all. Other than if you were happen to be on Arclight Phoenix or some other Phoenix, but that's a whole other kind of thing. Um, but I definitely had some trouble dealing with that as a deck that was red. Like it's pretty hard to kill a six six. It's tough to block it, and so mm -hmm. and then having it be able to come back. And sometimes you just totally mize getting like your opponent when they have no cards in hand. You bring Kroxa back, and it's you know, one trigger when it comes back into play, then you attack with it the first time and it's another trigger and you're just like, okay, I guess I'm going to take 12 off of this thing and there's not really anything I can do about it. No, absolutely. And like, I really think it does shine better in a deck that just has a lot of must deal with the threats. Like once again, I play Rob Master. I play this, you know, high value card engine and you have to kill all these things. 
So by the time you have a Kroxa, by the time you have another Rebel Master, by the time you slam your Glory Bringer, they're out of their removal, or they have to use it again, and you have ways of recurring it, etc. So to get you know to the meat of it, I'm a believe on this. I'm not quite a sleeve yet for reasons that we've discussed. The mana base is just not there for like a solid sort of black red Rakdos Jun style deck. Doesn't quite exist. The the main re- the problem with this is I think it's something you touched on a minute ago, which is you have to control the amount that the splash is, right? If you're trying to play a black one drop and then a red red two drop, and you're trying to like go back and forth between black and red at all points in the curve, that can be pretty bad. If you're basically saying I'm okay playing this card on turn four or five, and you can really narrow that black splash or do the flip side and really narrow the red splash, I think you could probably get there with a deck like this. But it is hard when the the mana distribution is closer to 50-50, I think, because of the way the allied mana bases work. Right. So once again, I know we we love to ride this pony all night long, but Black Leaf Cliffs would have just made this deck feel so very, very good. <laughs> But I guess the flip side is that is I am not sold that Croxa is a modern power level card. So that is why I decided to go Pioneer. I thought I'd have a little more fun, have more to talk about, and be less like, yeah, I was playing Croxa and they just comboed off. So like I don't I don't know what you want. But here there's a lot more of like, okay, like how do I sequence this? Like, is it correct to thought seize on turn one, then tap land turn two, then turn three Croxa with a tap land? Stuff like that. Like it, it felt more a little more slow and a little more grindy and a little more mid-range mirror-y where I think a card like this really can shine and not in an aggro control uh, sort of a meta. Yeah, so how would you kind of define this deck, Zach? Do you think it's more of just a a value black-red deck? Do you think it's kind of has a more aggressive angle to it than a lot of mid-range decks? Like, are you trying to just sort of eke out max value per card? Like, how do you think that this deck's going to take shape in the future? (sighs) I think in the future, once again, this is reliant on mana base changes. Because if, if we don't get better or like we, if we don't get the red black fast land, this deck has to adapt differently. But I think if we can get more consistent early dual lands for red black, I think this deck does move to a lower curve. Mm-hmm. Maybe you see it top out at something like Rabble Master or perhaps, you know, Bone Crusher Giant. It ends at a three drop and it just is mising you with all these cards. I think it's not impossible to see it in a grindy shell as well. But it just felt a little hard because Dreadbore is a sorcery. And Dreadbore is a card that this deck really relies on a lot, I felt like. Mm-hmm. That as well as uh, Angrath's Revenge. Rampage? Rampage. He's having a bad time on Ravnica. Angrath's no good, very bad time on Ravnica. It's one in a black. It's a sorcery. Look it up. Yeah. But both those cards felt very pivotal to your plan and very much felt like if you could not cast them on curve within like a one-turn window, sort of the value that you could get is gone. Because they're sorceries, once again. So there's times where, like, do I play a creature or do I play a removal spell? And the ability to be able to be flexible and, like, okay, I play a one-drop that's going to go ahead and stall the game, and I kill your creature. So I think that this could go a lot of ways, depending on what sort of mana bases we get in Pioneer. So I think if we're if we're not getting that support early, this can get really grindy, but then we'll need something like a Terminate. But if we get those really good lands, maybe we don't need to terminate as much and we just get to go heavy on the lower cost red black value cards. Cool. But I think the future is Kroxa and the future's good or a hellscape, depending on your point of view. Well, it is red black, so it's it's going to be the, the cruel celebration. Nuclear waste. Yeah, or whatever the, the Rakdos people do on Ravnica. Dave, you're up next, right? Yeah, and I think I have an 
what I would describe as an unenviable task because <laughs> yeah, good luck, man. Yeah, I know the deck that I chose to play for this episode. Would you call it Sisyphean? I would call it the inverse of what I usually like to do. Which is not push a rock up a hill nonsense. Yeah, which is not pick a deck that all of a sudden every pro in Magic is writing about on the week that I have to do content about <laughs> it. So the, the deck that I chose to do... Hey, you can hang. Yeah, I can hang with LSV. <laughs> listen, listen, yeah. buds. Uh, hey, Luis, I, I have some thoughts about Demir Inverter that I would like <laughs> to share with my audience as well. What do you think about that? How do you keep finding my number? Yeah, Luis, stop texting me. <laughs> Oh, Luis, please. Um, look, so yeah, so I chose to play <laughs> Demir Inverter this week. And when we talked about this episode four or five days ago, uh, I think that we were all aware that this deck was starting to gain some steam, but I don't think any of us thought it was going to suddenly break big and be 20% of the day one meta in a pro tour o- over the weekend. Mm-mm. And uh, and 15% in another one and be seven of the 16 available top eight slots across two pro level events in a single weekend. I, I believe I called it a fringe deck for nerds in the chat. So I'm not good at magic, apparently. <laughs> I mean, I think that that's Zach, this is definitely not your style of deck. So I can understand you being like, this is a deck for nerds. Like, I, I totally get that. <laughs> this is a deck for math majors. Yeah. I mean, and the, the thing that's crazy about it is like, there's been a huge amount of content published around it. It's not totally in line with what we want to do in the, the Sleep Belief Heave episodes, but I had already put the work into it. So we, we're kind of going to talk about it. And we also, it's an important deck suddenly. Is it still spicy? I think, yeah, I think Demir Inverter is kind of a spicy thing now. It's new enough that I think most people haven't played against it or they've played against it a few times. It's a totally different mechanic than most people are thinking about. How many Scovilles, Dave? I think it's like 20,000 Scovilles. Is it a Reaper? I think it's somewhere between uh, Scotch Bonnet and a Reaper. And over the next couple of months, maybe the next month, it'll get down to a Habanero level. But right now, it's pretty hot. (laughs) The thing is, is it still an unestablished deck? It's not really. Like, I mean, it's pretty established. So, look, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time trying to put together my own guide to the deck. Please <laughs> go and support Luis Scott Vargas if you want to read a really good article. He put, published one on Channel Fireball over the weekend that said, uh, I think it, the title is, Did Demir Twin Break Pioneer? Oh, <laughs> I'm going to read it after this because... I read the beginning and then I was like, oh, I have to go talk about this on the show. I better not just like crib LSV. So I know it's a good article because LSV wrote it and he doesn't write about decks unless it's something he really, really likes. So just keep that in mind. And someday we might even do a full dive down about this deck. But hey, let's just talk about it in the context of our sleeve believe heave mechanics. So I decided that given the way the weekend turned out, I was going to just use canisters deck list. By the time I I really got into testing with this, the deck list was available, the top eight had been established, and so uh, it felt like Canister was not the originator of this archetype, but was someone who had put a ton of time into tuning it, shared it with everybody, got a lot of credit for that. We talked about that earlier. Mm -hmm. So let's talk really quickly about the anatomy of the deck itself, the list that Canister played, which is basically, here's what it is. It's a blue-black combo deck right? So it's kind of locking this line between control and combo. And essentially, the deck is made up of cards that are combo pieces, ways to draw into the combo, and ways to buy time to draw into the combo. I mean, that sounds about right for a blue-black deck, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here, here's how it works. You can imagine a lot of the cards. There's a lot of format staples in, in here. The first category is discard. There's Thoughtseize, 
Every deck that has black starts with Thoughtseize, right? It's four <laughs> of Thoughtseize in Pioneer. You just got to have it. It is it is what it is. It is a format pillar. The second card uh, in here is that this deck actually runs a couple of copies of Thought Erasure to be able to have six discard spells main deck. That's that's what was going on in uh, in Canister's list. I think some people were running Duress out of the sideboard and other things, but he just went straight up with those six cards. Thought Eraser also has the benefit of the surveil too, right? So you can plop a card in your graveyard to fuel your delve spells. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. That's attention. That's something we're going to talk about in a little bit. But there's a little bit of attention between how many cards do I want in my graveyard and how many cards do I not want in my graveyard, um, because the answer is not always super clear cut. Mm-hmm. But yes, there's a little bit of upside to that when combined with the next category of cards, which is what I called small draw and big draw. So this deck runs four ops and two Omen of the Sea. Now, Omen of the Sea is a card we haven't talked about a lot, and I think it's a card that deserves some attention. That's the small draw, and everybody knows what op does, but I'm going to read Omen of the Sea really quickly. So Omen of the Sea is an enchantment. It costs one generic and a blue, and it says when Omen of the Sea enters the battlefield, scry two, then draw a card. This is an enchantment that has flash, I would just like to point out. So it is an instant speed scry to draw card Hmm. for two CMC. And then it has an activated ability that says two colorless and a blue sacrifice Omen of the Sea scry two. So in a deck where you are really trying to grind, have some time, draw to certain cards, this card can basically scry two for you twice and it draws you a card once. It's a super powerful card Hmm. i think and in the context of pioneer i think it's actually very good i know some people have been playing it in in modern as well um just as an aside i know the pen sword has been playing it in um emrakul breach blue moon i I just think it's a card to keep your eye on if you haven't been paying attention to it yet i watched our very own stan cast it and what must have been the pen swords list for breach but i've seen it in modern i've seen it online as well it's one of those things where you know, it's two mana, so people go, eh, you know, two mana, whatever. But the ability to cash it in and have it flash, I think it's a cool card. And here's the reason that it's good in this deck. You get to decide if you want it to end up in your graveyard or not. Ah. More on that later. Um, so those are the small draw cards. And then the big draw cards, of course, there's really only one. It's the big dig, dig through time. Mm-hmm. Card's okay. <laughs> just, just okay? <laughs> Other format staple that people are constantly talking about whether it's going to get banned or not. We'll see. But uh, that's the draw suite. Then there's cheap removal. Uh, the deck runs four fatal push, of course, the other kind of black pillar, one CMC black pillar card, along with um, Drawn in the Lock, which is actually pretty good in this deck uh, as a kind of dual player between a counter spell and a removal spell. Uh, now, there's not a lot to enable adding cards to your opponent's graveyard in this, so you have to watch the spells that you're trying to get with Drawn in the Lock, but um, it's I found it to be pretty good in this deck. And then the last thing is... It has a little bit of counterspell action in Sensor, Drown in the Lock, and Mystical Dispute out of the sideboard. So I think there's actually a little less kind of counterspell than people might expect out of a blue-black control. You're mostly kind of relying on Thought Seize, and then you maybe tempo someone with a little uh, Sensor. Other than that, you're just trying to draw into your combo pieces. And the thing is... It doesn't have a creature-based kill condition, but it does have a creature-based kill condition because the combo that we've talked about here a number of times is the true the true card that I think this deck is built around is Thassa's Oracle. Okay, and I think that's the big card that people should be paying attention to as far as like what is the one of the biggest combo enablers in Theros Beyond Death is 
Thassa's Oracle, right? Mm-hmm. There's all these different decks that are built off of it. The Bre- the Lotus Breach deck is using it in Pioneer. Ad Nauseum seems to be using it in Modern. I think there's a number of homes that this card is going to keep showing up in because it has a very simple to understand and pretty simple to enable win condition. So I'm going to read Thassa's Oracle really quick in case people don't remember. I'm sure you do. It's blue-blue for a 1-3 Merfolk Wizard. And it says, when Thassa's Oracle enters the battlefield, look at the top X cards of your library, where X is your devotion to blue. Put up to one of them on top of your library and the rest on the bottom in a random order. If X is greater than or equal to the number of cards in your library, you win. And it's just in the middle of this block of text that says that. It's kind of unassuming, but I think it has opened a whole bunch of these different kind of like super self-milled decks to be able to be used. So that's the real win condition of the deck. It's interesting that the text you win is printed on a card with this low of a mana cost. Typically, it's on a more expensive card, often five colors or way higher requirements. It's not that hard to meet this requirement. Yeah, it's not like you have to have the city's blessing. You know what I mean? It's like it's just a consequence of milling yourself. And there are a lot of ways in the game of magic to get your deck into your graveyard. Yeah, and I think the thing to remember here is that so whether you like this deck or not, or whether for any number of reasons <laughs> this deck survives, whether it falls out of favor, whether it gets banned, who knows? If Thassa's Oracle is around, this is a card that decks are going to be built around for a very long time. So just earmark it. I mean, this might be called Demir Inverter. I really think this deck should be called Demir Oracle, but that's for another day, I guess. So let's talk about in the other card in the combo, essentially, which is Inverter of Truth, which is a totally forgettable mythic from Oath of the Gatewatch that is two black black for a 6-6 six, six with flying. It's not as good as a two-mana 6-6, six, six, but this one doesn't doesn't die when you, as soon as you play it, Zach. <gasps> and the text on it is, when Inverter of Truth enters the battlefield, exile all cards from your library face down, then shuffle all cards from your graveyard into your library. So here's a weird thing that this card does. I know on its face, it's really easy to see the interaction between having a small graveyard, flipping it to become your library, and then playing Thassa's Oracle to be able to win. I think the thing that's a little bit harder to see is that it also helps you in when in combination with either a really aggressive start to the game where you have a small graveyard or in combination with dig through time where you get to weed through the cards that you have left in your graveyard, you get to flip your graveyard into a doomsday style stack of like pure gas. Mm -hmm. So if you are someone who is like, okay, it's time for me to go for my combo kill. My I've already thought seized my opponent twice and I've countered them once and I've got a fatal push and a bunch of garbage in my graveyard. You can dig through time, try to get a combo piece, get rid of all the garbage, get your graveyard down to those pieces play inverter of truth, flip your graveyard. And then your, your um, library is just thought sees, thought sees drown in the lock and fatal push. And that's it. So every card that you draw, you're hoping probably in that case that you're going to draw thought seizes so that you can try to like strip your opponent's hand before you play your thoughts Oracle. But there's just all these ways to kind of like the, the secondary benefit is that all of a sudden you have a bunch of powerful cards coming back into your hand. Yeah. That's like the super elegant, part about this deck right like if if it was just inverter of truth jace and thassa's oracle you'd be like okay this is kind of a clumsy thing sometimes your graveyard has like 10 cards in it and you have a lot of work left to do but with the the devil spells and particularly dig through time it just synergizes so ridiculously perfect where you can like sculpt and craft your your upcoming deck like you just talked about that it just is 
quite good. It is. And, you know, you mentioned Jace. Uh, I didn't talk about the card yet, but the other card that's a combo piece here is Jace, Wielder of Mysteries, which I think is another card that people might have looked at in War of the Spark and kind of went, ah, this is like a weird mill Jace. It's another Jace. Yeah, it's another Jace. What do you want? It's not that great. So it's it's one blue, 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 and it has the Lab Maniac static ability, which is basically if you would draw a card while your library has no cards in it, you win the game. It's got four loyalty. Who cares? Who gives a frick? It's plus one is Thought Scour, which is is pretty cool, actually. So target player puts the top two cards of their library into their graveyard, draw a card, uh, which synergizes really well with a small library because you can play this and then sometimes mill out your library and then play a Thassa's Oracle mm-hmm. to be able to win on the same turn. Or sometimes you win with Jace's static. A fun little tidbit for the card Thought Scour. This podcast and a lot of discussions about how we feel magic cards began because once upon a time, I sent to a group chat, it's not scarring yourself really that good. Mm. And someone DM'd me to tell me about how wrong I was about it. And lo and behold, here we all are. Here we are. And you, we had a long discussion with you and Stan about that, as it turned out. I, You know, I, I think it's still not that good. But what are you going to do? That's funny. <laughs> well, you don't play blue cards, really. I refuse to. So. But yeah, so that's kind of the third combo piece. And the the thing about Jace Wielder Mysteries is that you kind of can play it for value because Thought Scour, a plus one that draws you a card is pretty reasonable and it synergizes well with your win condition, even if you don't quite get there. So at any rate, those are the pieces that make up the combo. So people have been calling this Blue Black Twin. And as someone who played Splinter Twin, I actually think that they're pretty right about that. I, I really like that nomenclature for it, actually. I know that it's not a thing that makes infinite copies of something, and so maybe that's a, a reason that it's a little bit different or, or not quite the same archetype. But the thing that this deck does is that it basically is able to run a bunch of disruption and then just drop a win con that you almost can't do anything about, and you can kind of go short and do these match wins and do these game wins where all of a sudden you win on like turn five. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably turn five usually is the, is the earliest you can really do it. And um, just win. And if your opponent doesn't have removal or doesn't have a way to interact with it, you just do it. And a lot of times people are just playing their game plan. And in game one, you can just be like, turn four inverter of truth. I have an opt in my graveyard and that's it. Or I have a thoughts, thoughts used in my graveyard and that's it. I play inverter of truth and the next turn I play Thassa's Oracle and game's over. And that's just it. Seems good. It's like, sorry, you can't do much about it. Sorry. Because even in the case where someone kills your Thassa's Oracle when the trigger is on the stack there, which is a trick that a lot of people want to try to do. Oh. Yeah, because your devotion to blue suddenly becomes zero. If you still have zero cards in your library, it doesn't matter. You still win the game. Yep. What a feel bad. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, I drew my opts. Uh, I'm going to play this. Oh, you killed it. I guess I'm going to let the trigger resolve still. Or even if you had a, an extra card, you could still opt in response to the trigger and draw the card and then have the trigger go off still. So there's a lot of ways to get around stuff like that. I just think that the the, the style of play actually, to me anyway, is pretty close to the deck that you played when you were playing Splinter Twin. So I'm just going to put that my opinion on that kind of whole idea to the side and just say, yeah, I kind of think this is Splinter Twin. Yeah, Dave, one of the things that uh, Brian Brunduin was saying recently was that control combo decks and kind of slower mid-range decks that also had combos were sort of historically some of the most powerful decks in Magic. 
And what are your thoughts on how this deck sort of fits into that archetype? It's is it is it kind of a controlling deck that just has that combo win? Does it, you know if it feels close to twin? Twin is considered one of the most powerful decks of all time. Yeah, and it was banned. And I have conflicting thoughts about whether I think that this is going to be banned anytime soon. I do think that this is a mostly control combo deck. But one thing that I did read in LSV's article before I decided not to read the whole thing was he basically mentioned that, you know, the deck can go long, but it can't go that long. And so I think what you're really trying to do is disrupt early, and especially against a control, another control deck, you're trying to disrupt early and then drop your combo as fast as you can to try to catch them when they're trying to develop before they start drawing a bunch of cards. So you get ahead on a number of cards in hand and then go for it. Against aggro decks, you also kind of have to go fast because there's while there is creature kill in here, there's not really that much of anything in particular other than win cons and cards that draw you win cons. So Dave, when you compare it to Splinter Twin... I feel like that can mean a lot of things to some different people. And it's sort of become a catch-all term for format boogeyman or like unbeatable combo. So when you say that, you just mean like sort of consistent turn four combo, right? Or No, I mean, literally, it's like playing Splinter Twin in the sense that you are using very cheap disruption spells to be able to either keep your opponent off balance, punish them for trying to play cards, and then you sneak out a win con before they're really ready to do anything about it. So it's much more about the actual play style than it is the way the deck works or what position in the metagame it even has to be. To me, it does feel like like I did when I would go, uh, someone would play a spell on turn, turn, you know, I would remand someone's spell and then the next turn I would drop my win count and drop Splinter Twin and go. Sure. Uh, can it do the thing that Splinter Twin could do where you don't need the combo and you can just grind them out and have sort of an attrition game? Or does it really come down to that it can play that tempo game but doesn't need the combo to win? In I think it's very hard to win without the combo with this deck. Okay. You can kill people with Inverter Truth. 6-6 <laughs> six, beatdown is real. But really, that's it, at least pre-board. Post-board, you, you do look at kind of like, hey, maybe I take some of the combo out or maybe I lean more into you know some more resilient threats like the Scarab God is in the sideboard of, of Canister's deck. Kalidus is in the sideboard. Uh, so there there are other cards to be win cons in that deck, but it, it's pretty hard to win without the combo here. And if you're going to go for an inverter kill, you have to be pretty sure that you're not going to deck yourself very fast if you go that way. So it limits your options with some other things as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think that this deck is, you know, I, I got to play like maybe 10 or 12 matches with this. I took it through one league. I got the inverse of the record that I think most people would think here. I got a 1-4 in the actual league that I played with this. So it's not like it kind of all came together and happened really easily and naturally. I think it's pretty hard to play. I did pretty well with this in the practice room before I started. I think I got I went three or four wins in a row, and I was like, okay, I'm ready to give the uh, give the league a shot. And then I think I won the first match in the league and then lost the next four. So before we get to the the rating, I have a couple of things that I want to talk about really quickly to close this up. So I think that this deck is kind of weird in that I don't have a great sense of what matchups are good against it and what matchups aren't that good right now. Um, it does seem like if someone is not interacting with you or not ready for you, you can win out of nowhere. I had games where I felt like I was doing really well against control, and then I had games where I felt like I had no game against control. So I feel like it's a little kind of inconsistent in that sense. I think probably the the writing on that will develop a little bit more over time as we see this deck around a little bit more. The one thing that felt... There's two main takeaways that I had that I want to share with everybody. One is, 
I do feel like I lost games to the mana base hmm. in this deck because it is an allied mana base, the same as what Zach was talking about. And let me tell you, it's a very, very specific reason why. Mm. It's because I would find occasionally, you know, this deck runs uh, a number of the comes into play tapped Amonkhet lands. It runs Fabled Passage and stuff like that. No. Yes. Yes, it does. Just like what you were talking about. Just like my deck. But the real problem here was I, you can really easily lose to against another Thoughtseize deck. And so if you can't drop your drop an untapped black mana and thought seize someone who's going to thought seize you when you're on the play, you can lose really easily because they can grab your enabler, they can grab one of your combo pieces, and then it just puts you way off of your game. And your thought seize is less good when you get a chance to play it then because you're no longer going to grab the disruption that was going to get your card. Thank God someone said it. So I, I lost at least three games, I feel like, to not being able to play a turn one thought seize when I had one in my hand. Wow. Yeah, that was pretty brutal. The second thing I would say is that I don't think Graveyard Hate does much against this deck. I don't think so either. And that's my experience after playing it, is that a number of people would drop a Tormod's Crypt, and then I would still go off, and they wouldn't do anything about it. They wouldn't activate the Tormod's Crypt, and I was like, well, what happens here if you activate Tormod's Crypt? Nothing. So they just wouldn't do it. Oh. <laughs> a whole lot of nothing. Hold on, Dave. So, so you're saying, like, let's say you had a you know graveyard of, of five cards, and you cast an inverter like them popping the tormod's crypt wouldn't really do anything that i was thinking about that being like pretty decent tech i don't know why but people did not pop it multiple times against me when i had it when i did that into their their tormod's crypts hmm. that seems like a good way to kill the deck to me too but people had the opportunity against me they didn't do it the one that i had the hardest time with honestly was Leyline of the void because you have to calm down and sort of like wait for a turn where you can play both Inverter of Truth and Thassa's Oracle in the same turn. Right. Or you play Jace Wielder of Mysteries earlier, uh, protect it, play Inverter of Truth later, and then plus one Jace to draw a card and win the game off of that. And that's the main problem with Graveyard Hate against it is that if, if, you, if someone has it out, you just try to play Inverter and your win condition in the same turn instead. Sure. Which I managed to do a couple of times. So let me get to the rating. So this deck for me is right on the line, I think, between sleeve and the vaunted double sleeve <laughs> Whoa. rating. Now, just a reminder of what double sleeve means, because I hate double sleeving cards. What double sleeve <laughs> means is something that is so good, it's bad. That's Wait, what? Yes. This is the rating that we gave to Hogak as well. Mm, was I there? You were there. It's a whole blur. Baby. Uh, it's been yeah, the last year has been a real blur. So I think we're right on the line to where like where this deck is maybe too good-ish. I tend to be someone who feels, you know, a little bit more uh I want to see how things play out. I I don't think it is that too good, but I think it's definitely a very powerful deck, likely a staple, and I definitely think that Thassa's Oracle decks will be a staple for a while in Pioneer and probably in Modern. Cool. All right. So I get to talk about the other Titan from Theros Beyond Death, and that's uh, Simic Ramp featuring Uro, the pushed Simic Mythic. I mean, Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath. <laughs> so that's one of the most obviously powerful cards from Theros was Uro, and it was you know, the first card I pre-ordered from the set. I was keeping my eyes open for decks it was showing up in um, right after set came the set came out. So I suspected there would be some ramp strategies that employed 
euro because it naturally fits in as kind of like this growth spiral type effect where it draws a card potentially ramps your mana euro uh, gains you some life and then eventually gets to come back out of the graveyard doing all that over again but also exists as like your six six beater with a lot of upside every time it's attacking so some of the early rough draft style versions of the deck i was seeing and then testing as well included like four hydroid crises because that seemed like this really obvious include in a simic deck with all this mana right and the mana acceleration package is built around stuff like arboreal grazer uh gross spiral mentioned before nissa's pilgrimage and the threats looked like uro nissa who shakes the world cavalier of thorns world breaker ugin the spirit dragon and ulamog the ceaseless hunger and so while all these threats kind of have stuck around i think the acceleration package has sort of been fine-tuned and also hydroid crisis as a threat quickly sort of fell out of the deck construction why though like this is a card that previously i used to see it a lot in pioneer like oh god they're gonna draw four that's like okay whatever this is game like i can't come back from this and in a deck that can make a lot of mana and really grind it out why wouldn't a card like this fit in there I think what I found to be the case was that the fail state of Hydroid Crisis kind of stinks. Because <gasps> unless you have a bunch of mana to pump into it, you're getting a pretty anemic threat and you're not getting a lot of value out of it. And so I think that's why Hydroid Crisis has felt better not in the deck or maybe just as a singleton. Some of the issues with the first versions of the deck that I was testing was that Uro was just dead in the graveyard far too often because you don't have fetch lands. You don't have a lot of the cheap kind of uh, blue cantrips that you might run in a deck like this. You don't really don't have room for blue cantrips in a deck like this. Right. And even some of the ramp like a burial grazer doesn't go to the graveyard right away. Nope. Or you have to go through some hoops too. So with the red-black version where you can thought seize or use some removal and those cards go to the graveyard incidentally, I feel like here it's you don't get that sort of incidental value to escape your titan. Yeah, Simic decks don't have a lot of interactive spells that you're going to be playing game one especially. So you're not just naturally filling your graveyard. And so Earl was just sitting there in my graveyard and i might have like two cards yeah at that point you know because it's just like what am i filling this graveyard with besides like nissa's pilgrimage and the game plan of these early decks as they were constructed seemed really reliant on very good curves into ramp so you know if you drew perfectly then you were on you're on target but otherwise there was a lot of failing that was happening it you know it really relied on cavalier of thorns as like your enabler for uro and having to rely on that card alone as like this two card combo that didn't do anything spectacular out of the gate really wasn't enough. I think my ramp felt a lot more reliable with the mana dorks instead of trying to cast that growth spiral. But even in this build, Uro was feeling still stranded in the graveyard and really relied on the Cavalier of Thorns to get it there naturally. And then what I started seeing was like a third variant where things started feeling really good. And Seder Wayfinder shows up in the deck. So we saw that in the Sultai Delirium decks. We're starting to see it in a lot of sort of, you know, we saw it in the graveyard filling decks of the uh, Dredgeless Dredge. It's so obvious and elegant in this deck because it puts cards in the graveyard, provides you a chump blocker because you need time 
for a deck like this a lot of times. And it almost always ensures that you have a future land drop. So it's not ramping your mana, but simply having that land to play is what you need. A quick thought for you. Did you ever consider going a more delirium route with this deck? I did not, but I'm starting to see, you know, there's kind of a blend where it's like the Yolarsen deck plays for euros but doesn't really have a lot of ramp going on because doesn't really have room for it i'm curious and i'll talk about this a little bit later is is a simic ramp style deck the best place to be trying to do to try to capitalize on euro does it just get value out of euro in the style of deck that it is sort of naturally, but it gets to play bigger threats like Ugin and Ulamog, which something like Larson's uh, Delirium deck probably can't do. So I think that there's just a little bit of difference there. Does get to play Emrakul though. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. She's a very fancy lady, Shane. So Cedar Wayfinder was an awesome addition to the deck list. And the list that I was testing sort of like mid late last week I was I did the majority of my testing before the weekend because I was watching the players tour and honestly doing a bunch of family stuff. It was only a few cards away from the main deck that uh, attend Busan. Uh, they went eight and two at Pro Tour Brussels. So I guess people were agreeing that these versions that were maybe solidified by mid late last week were feeling pretty good. So what's the goal of this deck, right? It. Is pretty straightforward. You play your early mana dorks, your arboreal grazers, your Nissus pilgrimage spells to get your mana development online and play powerful spells. So along the way, you can be doing things like your Seder Wayfinder to ensure you're hitting land, stocking the yard for or even with Uro. And then you're casting those three mana Uros as well to pad your life total and draw even more cards. And then the mid game sort of transitions into you're maybe turn three or turn four, Nissa who shakes the world, your Cavalier of Thorns, and escaping Uro out of the graveyard, which they're all very potent threats that provide either aggression or defense when you need them. And then eventually you have this battlefield full of mana, you're outvaluing your opponent as you're casting things like Ugin the Spirit Dragon, Ulabong the Ceaseless Hunger, and you can take over nearly any game that goes pretty long. So what did I like about this deck? I thought that there's very powerful cards along the curve, especially starting around like four mana. I mean, your early game is really just kind of getting your mana engine online. But even at four, you're escaping Uro if things have gone well. Uh, Nissi Who Shakes the World has been amazing to cast ahead of curve since the early days of Pioneer in terms of the Mono Green Devotion deck. And that's not changing here. I think that Cavalier of Thorns is also a real house of a card. Uh, it has huge power, huge toughness, can block even like insold artifact creatures all day. It can block any flyers because it has reach. So it's super handy in a defensive stance. And then when you can turn the corner and the game's in your favor, he almost is always requiring like a double block on the opponent's side. And he also has high enough casting costs that if you Ugin and want to sweep the board of everything for CMC or lower, you still get to keep your, your five drop Cavalier of Thorns to finish the game off. I mean, this deck is full of like the best cards. It's like the, all the biggest cards are all right here. <laughs> I think uh, Seder Wayfinder was a really smart pivot, as I said, because we saw Seder being used in those Delirium decks to fuel Delirium and then also fuel Escaping Uro, and it works really well here as well. Uro was simply just unreliable until Seder Wayfinder was in the deck, and I think that those two have to go hand in hand along with uh, the Cavalier. Yeah, it's like your Faithless looting. 
Exactly. And Uro is a very, very good magic card. Gain three life, draw a card, put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield every time it enters the battlefield or attacks. And it's a 6-6. Six, six. So you're going to be attacking with it. Yeah, these things are totally absurd. I mean, I keep thinking Croxa is powerful. Croxa is powerful, but then you see this and you're like, oh. <laughs> well, one of them's blue day. Yeah. So what are you going to do about that? I, it's really annoying. Look, I like to play blue, but that that is annoying. That, that's always better than red? That it's always every single time better than red? It's always better. Simic lived in the shadow of every other guild for far too long, so... Oh, whatever. They've certainly made up some ground the last 20 months. Yeah. <laughs> 20 years of hell. If Uro is sticking, the game's going to end pretty quickly. And and like most big mana decks, I loved how the inevitability of the deck is just better than most anyone else's. Like, the things you're doing are just more powerful than the rest of the format, by and large. You're casting an Ugin for 8, your Ulamog for 10. Those two spells are almost always going to be a good game. Not always, but most of the time. It's it's just sort of fun to play this deck and slowly take over the game with all this incremental value, like Nissa, like Uro, like Worldbreaker, and, and Ulamog. You can grind people out once you have all this mana that they don't have access to. But there were some issues with the deck, some things I didn't love was that it didn't have a lot of interaction with the battlefield or their hand because, you know, it's a Simic deck, so it doesn't have the access to those type of effects. Yeah, what what interaction with their hand would you like in blue and green? Well, Dave, I would love Thoughtseize. Uh, Thoughtseize, but it's actually a hybrid blue-green mana. You want peak? You want to run a peak? I mean, I'm not saying I expect that. I'm just saying it doesn't have it, so I don't, so I don't like it. You deserve it, though, right? You're saying that's owed to you? You know that I, I'm not even like a... I don't identify as a Simic mage here, Zach. You're right. I'm in the wrong again, Shane. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, in the sideboarded games, it tries to pivot to having more interaction. So it has a lot of counter spells, conditional counter or like bounce spells like Aether Gust, Unravel the Aether. But largely, it doesn't have great ways to slow the opponent's game plan down while establishing the number of lands it needs to cast its spells. So it's relying on you know the body of Arboreal Grazer. It's relying on chump blocking with Seder Wifefinder, a mana dork if absolutely necessary, or trying to gain some life with Uro prior to getting it escaped out of the graveyard. So all that stuff can get the job done. But we're in a world where there's you know five five or larger in soul artifact creatures. You know, there's a bunch of red creatures beating down that are backed up by a Torbran. Um it's not really comforting to try to buy time like this. And it definitely fails more, not more often than not, but a good amount of times. And many of your threats are wrapped up in a single body, right? Like, so you're going to stick that turn five Cavalier of Thorns. They could maybe just be going wide around you. They might just have four creatures to swing into you and you're just blocking with that Cavalier of Thorns and they're still getting, you know, nine damage in on you. So that's not really going to get the job done either. No. I mean, the, the example of a game I recently played, a, a match I played, there's this is some bad variants, I think. You know, I went like through 28 cards of my deck without seeing a single Uro hit my graveyard a couple times in a row. But Mono Red, I was versus Mono Red. They were able to, I had a bunch of animated lands from like a turn three Nissa, and I was sort of buying some time. And they go Torbran one turn, and I'm like, well, know what's happening next time chain whirler and you know sweeps away all my arboreal grazer sweeps away all my three three lands um does three damage to me and they swing in and just eliminate me very efficiently so that's just the kind of stuff i mean this is maybe the wrong end of the stick but also it's like i'm not putting pressure on them anytime early 
So they get a lot of time to set up, you know, even a, a moderately ideal situation like this. And so I'm relying on things like Perilous Vault, which is like a pretty good parachute cord to pull when you have the, the card in hand or on the battlefield. And so a deck like this typically runs like maybe one in the main, one on the side. But even if it comes down like a turn early, like it's a, it's a four drop and it costs five to pop. So if you're playing it on turn three and popping it on turn four, that can still be too late because they can see it come down because it's an installment plan. So they might not play more threats into it. They've done a bunch of damage to you already. They sandbag a few more threats left and you have to be able to back up that sweeper with more threats quickly and turn the corner. And that's not always really easy to do because it's not like you're Tron. You're not, you're not making seven mana on turn three. You're making seven mana maybe on turn five. Yeah, absolutely. So my verdict on the deck is that I'm I'm a believer and there's a significant possibility of sleeve here. I think this deck feels like it does a lot. I think it can typically buy enough time to get to the end game, but it definitely is fragile in that period and I think you have to play smartly and and mulligan properly and build your deck properly to get to that time that you need i think the real question i have that makes me on the bubble here is how is it matching up against the emerging tier one decks of the format sure and is you know so is that what's it what's it look like against saltide delirium typically big mana decks have done well against mid-range style decks like that but i think saltide delirium is playing a lot of the same threats Right, it's like the same deck but a little smaller. Yeah, like it's it's like it's playing Euros. It's it has disruption and removal that this deck can't really play as it's built right now. And so I'm guessing that it might not be as great a matchup as something like Tron versus Jund in Modern. You know, is it going to be matching up against the newer more aggressive red decks pretty well or the mono white devotion decks that are getting in there pretty quickly or the more refined version of the is it in soul decks and while i you know was lauding the large toughness of a cavalier of thorns that is only one card in your deck and it still is a five drop so there can be a lot of damage done to you by the time you're getting to cast those types of cards so i think it's really cool if you like the style of deck, I think it's good at what it's doing. And I think that we did see some good results from the Players Tour events um, based on the sample size we saw. So I think that's a good deck. I think that it can be refined more. And I think that um, it's going to be the go-to style of deck in the format of that type. You know, I think that listening to this and watching what happened over the weekend, it's clear that Oro is just like a pillar that's worth building around right now, right? And probably will be for a long time. And so the question is just, do you want to be in a big Euro deck? Do you want to be in a little Euro deck? And how does that all shake out? So I think that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I think what's interesting about Euro is it doesn't need to be a big deck, right? It only costs four. So as long as you're filling your graveyard, you know you get some value out of it, even casting it for three. And then when you get it back out of the yard for four, it's doing something very powerful. So it's not like it needs to be in a big mana deck. It's just something that kind of works really well with it. But it needs to be enabled is the thing. And usually big mana decks are the places where you have a little bit of space for enablers. So, but I think that's cool. I mean, I think these are three newish new decks for pioneer and, you know, we got two believes and one 
scary sleeve, let's say. <laughs> and uh, yeah. One scare, scary sleeve. Just to put a, a, a bow on, on me a little bit more is I think that I would be willing to take this deck to uh, the Grand Prix this weekend. But I think that I want to be just a little bit more proactive. Like it's in my top four decks that I would pick from mainly because of my play style and the cards I have access to. But I mean, I think it's really good. Makes a ton of sense. All right. Well, thanks for that dive into Simic Ramp, Shane. And I think that that's going to wrap up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern or pioneer, please tweet us at the dive down all one word or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you would like to try to reach out to Shane this weekend at Grand Prix Magic Fest PT Phoenix, <laughs> hit him up on Twitter at Shane B. At Shane B. Wow, what an early Twitter handle you have there, my friend. At Shane B. I've uh, I had people tweet at me thinking I was Shane Bat- Shane Battier, uh, the basketball player. He's I think he's retired now though, so I don't get many of those. I see. Is that a humble break? No, I'm just saying it's, it's a minor annoyance of my my popular name. Telling you about how cool it is to be me. I'm not bragging. It's just a fact. If you want to get at Shane at Shane B on Twitter, if you want to tell Stan you miss him at Medium Gallery on Twitter. I'm not going to let that one go quite yet. Um, If you would like to support our show, you can join our Patreon. Joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel. We love interacting with our patrons. Please find us at patreon.com slash the dive down. Finally, a shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring the dive down. Sign up for manatraders using promo code the dive down, all one word for 15% off your first three months of renting magic online cards. And as always, Special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Space Blood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and invert your oracle. Listeners, let us know if you want more Chicago Pizza Talk.